We'll be looking at the entirety of 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 this morning, but our scripture reading is found specifically from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through chapter 4, verse 7. So if you go ahead and open up a Bible or pull it up on your phone there, that would be great so you can follow along. And as you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am thereby acquitted. The Lord... It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray as we come to this text today. Father, we praise you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the soaking rain that brings life and nourishment. And with that picture, Lord, we pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, rain upon us through your word today. May you speak to us, soften our hearts, so that we may hear and we may follow what you have for us today. We pray that you would speak. And we know that you promise that you speak through your words, so we come expectantly today. And I pray, Father, that anything that I say that is not in line with that would be forgotten and burned up. But we pray that those words that are yours would be quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. But we pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a, a debut crime fiction novel released in the spring of 2013 from a writer by the name of Robert Galbraith. The book had positive reviews, generally speaking, but it wasn't high in sales at all. In fact, it only sold 8,500 copies in the first three months, and by the summer, it found itself sitting in 4,709th place on the Amazon bestseller list. <clears throat> Killer, right? So how did a book like that jump from that position to the number one 
bestseller in the matter of one week. It was because it was leaked that Robert Galbraith was a pseudonym or a pen name for J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series. Now, we would love to believe that the world is fair and it doesn't evaluate people and their work on the basis of their name or their race or their status or position. But if 2020 has taught us anything, we know that that is far from true, sadly. Now, what's the difference between the writing of Galbraith and Rowling? Absolutely nothing except for a name and a reputation. Now, in this life, we are all evaluators, and we are constantly being evaluated. And we'd like to think that uh, we do not judge, but the fact is that all of us, over the course of our lives, have developed a certain filter of standards for which we judge things. And we have everything from who has the best fast food french fries, or whether or not the band Nickelback created anything of any value. It's an election year, so you know that these evaluations can be about serious topics or about silly things like the ongoing debate in our youth group as to whether or not SpongeBob is better than Phineas and Ferb. Now, we really do enjoy evaluating people, places, and things. But if we're honest with ourselves, we fear, really fear the evaluation of other people. But the fact of the matter is, it happens all day, every day. Your children or your spouse are evaluating your mood. The stranger at the store is evaluating your face covering. And you're evaluating them because they're wearing your face covering below their nose. Your boss is evaluating the project that you turned in. And your crush is evaluating that last snap that you sent them. And as we've seen over the last few weeks in 1 Corinthians, there's a heavy evaluation process that is going on here in the Corinthian church. And it's caused some great division. And Paul has built this argument over several chapters. And here today in this text, he comes to the peak of his argument. Now, if you remember, the Corinthian culture was built on the patron-client relationship. That means that there's any, uh, it's a continuing relationship, it's sometimes contractual, where a powerful or an influential person provides rewards and services to someone that is of more humble or, or weaker status for their loyalty and their support, and sometimes it included some exchange of service. So my status actually could be raised by my association with another person. Now this was huge in the Corinthian culture, and it made itself into the world of philosophy there. And wisdom was the highest of virtues, and if you have wisdom, it was believed that all things would go well with you. So people attached themselves to certain Stoics and teachers to raise their status. So you can imagine what it would be like when there was a church in that culture, and that culture found its way into the life of that Corinthian church. When people came to Christ, they believed that they had a, a deeper wisdom. So the teachers of Christianity were highly regarded. And as we see here in chapters 3 and 4, people have attached themselves to Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Now this was more and so much more than I prefer Paul as a speaker over Apollos and wow, I really like how blunt Cephas is. He almost puts his foot in his mouth all the time. It was more like Paul is better 
And I'm attached to Paul, so I, therefore, am better than you. Now these teachers regarded one another well, and there was no division between them. They didn't have anything against one another, but the people following them had their differences and used the differences in their personalities and their giftings to create division in the church. And what was the root of all of this division? Pride. We see that in chapter 4, verse 6, that word puffed up. Paul is the only writer in the New Testament that uses this word. He uses it here in 1 Corinthians, and then I think he uses it one more time in Colossians. And this word actually gives the image of an, an organ that is filled with air so much that it is distended beyond its proper size. And we see this principle taught in the book of James. What then is the source of all the quarreling and divisions among you? The root was pride. Me, me, me. Me first. I want what I want, and I want it my way, and I need to be evaluated highly by others. So we come to this text today, and we're going to see something over and over again, and it's this fact. Life is not all about me. Life is not all about me. Now before we sit back and say, okay, whew, this text isn't about me and my problems, I can sit back and relax, or before we think and we look around and say, oh, is so-and-so here today because they really need to hear this. Um, we need to realize that this is actually the default setting of the human heart. We evaluate people every day. Why? Because it makes me feel better about myself. It's why we watch, watch the train wreck of reality television. We say, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not as messed up as that family or that person. Or we say to others, you actually vote for that person? Or you go to a church in that denomination? And all the while we're thinking, you must be ignorant if you do that. But let's be honest with each other and with ourselves. We do that. We do. And we've even gotten really good at covering up our pride. It's what the late writer of Parks and Rec, Harris Whittles, coined as the, the term humble brag. And we see these humble brags all over social media. So this text is for all of us, and I put myself at the top of that list. Life is not all about me. So we're going to get an overview of a lot of this text, but I encourage you to dive deeper sometime on your own or in your community group. But we're going to look at three metaphors that Paul uses to close out his arguments on these childish divisions in the church of Corinth. First, the growth that only God can bring. Second, the building that only Christ can support. And finally, the verdict that only God can give. And we will look at the problem and the solution under each of these headings. So let's look first at the growth that only God can bring. We see this in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, and 4, 1 and 2. In the beginning of chapter 3, Paul uses this metaphor of growth. He talks about human growth through the intake of either milk or solid food and the growth of plants in a garden. So what's the problem that Paul lays out for us? Paul uses very gracious and loving terms throughout this text, like brothers and I come to you as a father, to show his sincere care and love for them. And because he loves them so much, he is going to speak the truth to them about their problems. And he begins this section by telling him that when he came to them, they were behaving as infants in Christ. So he fed them with milk rather than solid food because they weren't ready for solid food. Now note this, he doesn't accuse them of not being in Christ. 
He says they actually are in Christ, but he says he gave them milk rather than solid food. Now we understand this metaphor. You don't give a baby a ribeye steak for dinner, as great as that is. Now milk doesn't mean a watered down or a changed or a lesser message. Milk is still nutritious and appropriate for a baby. Now just like our children's sermons or our children worship, we do not water down truth nor do we change the, subs the substance of the gospel at all. But we strive to use words and <coughs> concepts that they can understand and digest better mentally. Now this is what Paul is saying. But he's saying that there was a jealousy and a strife among them, and essentially their pride was causing them to act like children. Because look down at verse 4. One says, I follow Paul, and the other, I follow Apollos. They had taken the beautiful and the good gift of having a variety of leaders and teachers come through and had made it an occasion for division and discord. So we see them bickering and fighting. I deserve this position because I was discipled by Apollos. Ha! Apollos! Paul, the apostle himself, discipled me. So I deserve this position. Now we would never be like that, right? So that's the problem. Here's the solution. The solution that Paul offers them here begins in verse 5, and he switches to a garden metaphor. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Now notice he depersonalizes it by using the word what rather than who. He says, are you serious? We are just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Now, Paul does not dismiss the importance or the value of each of the ministries of planting and of watering, but he points to the source for the actual growth for which the Corinthians actually longed and needed. He says, we are servants of Christ, all of us. We are one. There is no hierarchy. We are different, yes, but those differences do not make one better than the other. You see, differences do not have to imply division. The solution is in recognizing that in a gospel-shaped community, there is unity and diversity. And because God is the only source of growth, we are free to celebrate others when they flourish. Jeremiah was an amazing prophet, but he was told by God, in spite of all of his work and ministry, none of the people would respond. Now, we, do we diminish Jeremiah as a prophet because no one responded? No, of course not. Now, this metaphor of growth is reminding us that each dimension of ministry and that each servant of Christ plays an integral role in the building of God's kingdom. You have the gift of service, so you're happy to set up tables and chairs in the Sunday school classroom. You aren't less valuable to God's work because you aren't the one teaching the Sunday school class that will be using those chairs. You don't know if that conversation that you have with your coworker may produce fruit by God's grace years and years down the road. You know, when you're putting together a puzzle and a piece gets knocked off the table and the dog comes over and tries to chew it up, you say, you don't say, oh, it's no big deal, it's just one piece. Who puts together a puzzle knowing that there's a piece missing at the end? Now, the same is true with growing God's kingdom. Each piece is used by God and is crucial for His work. 
Look down at verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, we spend our lives, just like the Corinthians, evaluating people's talents and gifts. We say this uh, preacher is a great public speaker, but he's horrible at visitation. Or their administrative skills are amazing, but yeesh, they are awful in the pulpit. Now, it's not about your gifts or the ceiling of your gifts. You see what I'm saying? It's whether or not you were faithful to use those gifts and to strive to reach your ceiling, no matter what that is. That's the calling here. So the growth that only God can bring. It's not about me, but graciously God chooses to use each of us in the process of His kingdom building, and He brings about growth in His time. Then Paul quickly changes metaphors to continue his argument and his point and he says, the building that only Christ can support. And we see this in chapter 3, verses 10 through 23. Now, beautiful buildings speak for themselves, and they point to something. That's why great care was taken in the design and building of this structure that we sit in today. In fact, the beauty of some buildings around the world caused them to become destinations for locals and tourists alike. Now, on the other side of that, poorly constructed buildings are not only eyesores, but they are dangerous to people. And Paul sees the Christian community much like a building and wants to make sure that the community at Corinth is properly built. So in the beginning of this section, we see Paul call himself the skilled master builder. This was the idea of an architect or an engineer. And in this culture, it was the one that would oversee the various elements of a construction project from the beginning to the very end. So Paul puts himself in this position of authority, but also of personal interest and care for this project that's going on. And he reminds us again that all of this is according to God's grace, the grace that is given by God. And further, Paul sees the church as a communal building project in which the Corinthians come together as highly skilled construction crew, each one with their own responsibilities. So he's saying that the church is a communal building project. But we have a problem, and the problem is that we, just like the Corinthians, often get caught up in building our own lives and our Christian communities around and with the wrong things. He describes these things in verse 12 as wood, hay, and straw. And those things will one day go through the fire of testing and we'll all see what is left afterwards. We even go so far as to build our lives on the wrong foundation or support. So Paul questions them. Look down at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is an identity question. So the pride problem surfaces itself when we're building our own identity and we're using something other than our identity in Christ on which to build our lives. Now imagine with me for a moment a football player that has grown up playing football. All he did was eat, drink, and sleep football. And his life is totally built around this game. Now what happens to this player when he gets a career-ending knee injury in college? Everything on which his life is built is now gone. Right? Now we do the same thing, whether it's our job or our relationships. You name it. Even our parenting. What happens when our kid turns out sour? Everything is gone. 
So Paul gives the solution. He says this, remember your identity. Remember who you are in Christ. And he alone must be the foundation. Then he says, and then take care with the materials that you use in building upon that foundation. Do not use wood, hay, and straw, which are perishable, but use imperishable building materials to build your life in this Christian community and use materials like gold and silver and precious stones. Now, what does this mean? It means that we must build our lives in community by living a life according to the gospel as led by the Holy Spirit. You know, these combustible materials may appear to work well for some time, and they actually feel really good. But they will eventually destroy the person and the Christian community. And we don't have the time to give this section justice, but we all must ask ourselves, on what am I building my identity? On what are we seeking to build Stony Point Church? There can only be one foundation. And while many materials can and should be used in building upon that foundation, only some materials will stand the test of time. It's not about me. Pride destroys community. So it must be about Christ. It must be about the church, this Christian community. May we not destroy that community by turning against one another because then we are actually and truly turning against ourselves. And finally, we see this metaphor of the courtroom scene and the verdict that only God can give. In this section, we see this word judge several times here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. And it means to declare a verdict whether that verdict is positive or negative. And we see this problem. And the problem is, is that we're in the courtroom every day. Sometimes we are the prosecution, and sometimes we are the defense. We judge on style, position, influence, looks, power, production, output, social or economic standing, race, religion. And we know that we are being judged in many of the same ways. And we live in this evaluative cycle, and it makes us tired and exhausted, and we want to stop it somehow, but then in a glimpse that judgment is somehow good, and it feels good when we get that good judgment, and we feel accepted, and we forget that it's just a moment that is impossible to maintain. So we end up being paralyzed by one another's judgment of us. So modern psychology has stepped in and says, well, we need a higher self-esteem, right? And we're told that it shouldn't matter what they think. It only matters what you think about yourself. But studies are proving and they're finding that this type of thinking is equally paralyzing. I have a tough enough time living up to your standards, and I actually have a tough time living up to the standards that I put on myself. And I can't lower my standards, because who wants to be that person that has low standards, right? So we find ourselves in this daily trial, and we're putting check marks on one side or the other. And some days we feel like we're winning, and other days we feel like we're losing. We don't just do this socially or in our works and our jobs, we do it in our religious lives as well. And it's exhausting. We cannot maintain the cycle. So Paul tells us the solution. Look down at verse 3. 
But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Now wait, that sounds like the modern approach of psychology, right? It doesn't really matter what you think of me. I know what I think of you. But he goes on. Look at what he says. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul says, I don't really care what you think of me, but I also don't really care what I think of myself. I don't get the verdict from you, and I don't get the verdict from me. Now Paul isn't saying that he is perfect or that he is above their judgment, because remember, he's talked about himself as being the chief of sinners. But he's saying there is only one judgment that matters, and that is God's. It's a verdict that only God can give. That's why he uses here the Greek word for justified in verse 4. The verdict is in. It has already been declared. It is God who has justified him. And check this out. Only in Jesus Christ can a verdict be given before the performance. You see this? Romans 8.1 tells us there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. You see that? No condemnation. Think about that for a minute. How? God saw us in this trap cycle and there is no possible way that we could get out on our own so he sent his son Jesus Christ to come and live the perfect life that we could never live and to die a death on the cross. For our sin. Our sin. That death was ours. And he took it. Jesus went to trial and was put to death as our substitute and took that condemnation fully upon himself. But he conquered death and was raised to life so that we might have life abundant. And as we come to him in faith, trusting in his finished work, we are able to actually say confidently, it is only God who can judge me. And he's already passed, passed the punishment on to Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now you may say, like I often do to myself, wait, I believe and I trust in that. But I still find myself stuck in this cycle. It's because I need to remind myself that it's not about me. I need to preach the gospel to myself. The gospel that says the king has already declared the verdict for me, so who cares and what does it matter what the paupers say? The growth that only God can bring. In Jesus, we find the resources to fight through our growth that has been derailed for one reason or another. We no longer have to be enslaved to the wrong sources for growth because in Jesus and through his people, his church, we find this everlasting spiritual fertilizer that will empower growth. The building that only Christ can support. The temple, that is Christ, has already been demolished at the cross and will become the foundation of the temple of God that the Holy Spirit is building, the church. God is so committed to this reconstruction project that he gave his own life to lay the foundation. And that foundation is unbreakable. And then the verdict that only God can give. 
And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And I love this section in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together in Christ by grace who had been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not a very it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not about me. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are a people that often bring petty things to the table and it causes division. We bring some weighty things and some things for which we should fight, yes, but they bring division unnecessarily. So Lord, help us to remember the unity that we have in Christ. The unity in diversity, the unity in diverse gifting. Help us to remember that you are building this place and you have set us that have trusted on Christ on a secure foundation. May we live freely pursuing to glorify you because you have already declared the verdict of not guilty in Jesus Christ. So may we rest in that fact, but may we tirelessly pursue your glory and 